I'm going to address two things, actually maybe three things, real quick before we dive into this. Uh, one, I was reminded as I was walking up here, uh, tomorrow will be the first Monday of the month, so that means there's a board meeting tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. So, guys, if you're able, I'd encourage you to be here tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, and that's that. Second issue is, you know, baptisms are great. Um, I love celebrating with baptism. They're always fun, so I'm, I'm, I'm proud of Levi. That takes a lot a lot to get up in front of a room full of people. Um, so uh, I'm proud of him for doing that. So anyway, um, that's that. But whenever we do that, I'll bring a change of clothes because I don't want to be up here dripping. Well, I left my shoes in the car, so tennis shoes. And I was going to go out and get them. And I'm sitting back there, and Mitchell says, oh, no, wear your tennis shoes. <laughs> All right. So you got a problem with me wearing tennis shoes this morning. Blame Mitchell. Um, anyway. So that was fun. Third thing, I'm going to need your grace this morning. Um, we've had a bug run through our house this last week and a half or so, and I'm dealing with some of the residual effects of that, so um, I don't think I'm contagious, so you all don't have to panic and run or anything, but uh, uh, breathing is difficult right now, so uh, you might bear with me. I'm going to do my best to work through this today, but uh, yeah, if I stop or if I'm sniffling, that's why, okay? Uh, I'm going to do my best because nobody likes that whole snorting thing in a microphone. It's kind of gross. Um, but, you know, we're, we're a family, right? We can do this. Um, anyway, all right. Well, Happy New Year, y'all. Oh, look at that. Some of you caught it. All right, good. I was just going to keep moving. But Happy New Year to y'all. So um, it's actually kind of interesting being together on the first day of the year. Like um, last, last week was Christmas Day, and we were together on a Sunday morning. So that was kind of fun. And I enjoyed looking at some of like, how often that happens, which, by the way, isn't very often. Um, it's the same thing with New Year's Day, because I don't know if you know this, but it's a week later. So there you go. Uh, so it doesn't happen very often. So it's kind of interesting being together on the first day of the year. So um, I'd like to start by wishing you nothing but good things in 2023. And really being together on the first day of the year, it gives us an opportunity to start things out right. Um, so I'm not going to do the cheesy thing like 2023 is going to be the best year ever, because I can't promise that. Um, but it does give us an opportunity to say, you know what, it's a new year, we're going to start things off right, and hopefully that's exactly what we are going to do as we kick off this new series, um, The Way of Discipleship, The Way of Discipleship. Um, this is, uh, discipleship is really a main theme throughout Matthew. Um, as you start looking at Matthew and diving in, you can't help but notice that Jesus is calling disciples to himself and teaching them to be more like him. Um, so it's one of these things that we just can't possibly miss. It's one of the most important themes for us even as we start understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we're going to look at this theme of discipleship that runs through Matthew, specifically starting in Matthew sixteen twenty one today. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it with me, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. We'll read here in just a minute. But, um, but now before we get into it, before we get into it, um, I thought it would be helpful if we just stopped and we talked about this thing that we call discipleship. Like what in the world is this thing? Because it's a term we use often in the church, being a disciple or um, you, know, you need to engage in discipleship. But what is this term? What does it really mean? Well, discipleship, discipleship typically refers, it typically refers to the process of growth and development of an individual. 
A process of growth and development of an individual. Um, And we can think about the way this worked at the time of the New Testament, right? As you start diving into the New Testament, you see these Jewish rabbis who would go around. They would call disciples to themselves who would follow them either physically or just follow their teachings. So discipleship here in this time was was an adherence to a a particular person's teachings or a direct following of. Uh, A lot of rabbis in training, if you will, they would follow a teacher, physically follow them from place to place and learn from from them. Now, that gives us a clue as to what discipleship is, but Jesus actually takes it and he deepens the idea of discipleship. Um, these teachers, they would disciple somebody, they would bring them along so they could learn and eventually become like their teacher. Now, we want to become like our teacher, but we're never going to replace our teacher. We're never going to replace Jesus. We're never going to be perfected, at least not in this lifetime. So, we have to understand that it is, we can learn some things, but it's not exactly the same. Now, the word that is most often translated in the New Testament as disciples is this fun word, mathetes, um, which actually comes from a verb. And this verb is monthano. I believe we have that in here. And it just means to learn. Monthano, it means to learn. So whenever we say that we're a disciple of, what we're properly saying is, I am a learner of Someone. So if we say, I am a disciple of Jesus, I'm being discipled by Christ, that means that we are learning from Jesus, learning to become more like him. That is our goal. Um, And that's what we're called to as Christians. We're called to learn from the master. We're called to follow after him, to become more and more and more like him. So that's our goal whenever we start talking about discipleship. We're, We're striving to become more like our teacher, to learn from him, to come after him. In fact, as the church was first growing, as the first real, the church first began to really take off, um, the term disciple, the term disciple I read became essentially synonymous with the term Christian. Um, we think about Christian and we have one connotation and then we think about a disciple. We almost have another connotation, like it means something different to us. But in the early church, those were basically the same thing. It meant somebody who believed in and confessed Jesus as Lord and they were committed to him. Um, there's a professor and a dean at Biola University. His name is Michael Wilkins. He was summarizing what it means to be a disciple. And here's what he said. He said it means living a fully human life in this world in union with Jesus Christ and growing in conformity to his image. That should be our aim as Christians. Living in conformity to his image. Becoming more and more like Jesus. So y'all tracking with that? Y'all awake? Did you stay out too late? Man... How many of you actually saw Midnight? Y'all need to go home and go to bed next time. Like, come on. I'm just messing with you. It's all good. Um, I did not. I was in bed. I was snoring at that time. So anyway. Um, but see, this actually, this is very different. This idea of discipleship, it's actually very different than what we oftentimes think about whenever we think about Christianity. Um, discipleship is not easy. It's not easy. It's difficult. It means that we have to change in some way. Which, by the way, I like doing things the way I want to do them. I don't want to change. I want everything else to change to accommodate me. And just so you know, all of you are the same way. You may not realize it, but all of us are exceedingly self-interested. And what discipleship means is that we have to conform to him. We have to change. So, really, this idea of discipleship stands in stark contrast with what we think of Christianity. See, we think about Christianity, we think about churchgoers. Which is good. We think about praying a prayer. We even think about walking an aisle. Or we think about um, reading your Bible regularly or praying regularly. Which All those are good things. But is that what it means to be a Christian? Is that what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? And I would argue that, that while those are good things, that's not complete. 
Um, we are called to be his disciples, and that means that we have to live a life of submission to him, submitting to his teaching, to his ways. Um, and hopefully as we walk through today's text and really over the next several weeks as we talk about this way of discipleship, I hope that you see what I mean by saying it's not as simple as we oftentimes make Christianity, Christianity out to be. Um, Christianity is costly. It, it is costly and oftentimes painful. Um, but I can also promise you that it's good. Okay, Discipleship will require one of the hardest things that you will ever do, and that's this. And this is a fun word everybody likes to hear. It will require you to submit. It will require you to submit. Um, whenever we start talking about submission then, because if discipleship requires submission, what does that mean? Well, in the Bible, the word is hupotasso. It's a fun word. I didn't put that one in there, so you're just going to have to deal with that. But anyway, um, it's the word hupotasso, and it means to place oneself in the proper rank. It actually it, it was typically used as a military term. Um, and this term meant like, okay, so you have a commanding officer. Well, you're going to submit. You're going to place yourself in the proper rank behind him. Um, and that's what it means to be a disciple. It means that we are placing ourselves in the proper rank behind Jesus, recognizing that he is above us and we conform to what he commands. That's going to be painful. Okay, so it's going to require submission. So we're going to look and we're going to see some of these areas today in which we have to submit ourselves to Jesus. And that's going to be our goal is to see these areas of our lives that we actually have to submit to Jesus. Um, would you all stand with me out of respect for reading God's word? Uh, Matthew chapter 16, we're going to begin in verse 21 and read through the rest of the chapter. That will be our text for the day. Matthew 16, verse 21, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says this. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. (laughs) I love Peter. Uh, Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, um, as, we, as we open this text, as we look at this passage, Lord, I pray that you would show us what it means to submit to you. Uh, that we would see what it means to be your disciple. And that we would see that it's not some cheap grace that is bought for us. Instead, it's costly. Um, Lord, I pray that we would, be, we would be sober about what your word teaches. And we would, we would do what your word demands, and that is repent and follow after you. So, Lord, I pray for your help. I pray for your guidance. I pray that you would disciple us, that you would teach us, and that you would make us faithful learners of your word today. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that you would help us in this time, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. So, these areas of life. I think we see three areas of life that we have to submit to Jesus here. Okay? And the first of these, the first of these, we have to submit to Jesus. If we're going to be Jesus' disciples, we must submit to his wisdom. To his wisdom. 
Verse 21 says from then on. And what that means is that we have to actually think about what was happening before this. Now, it's been a couple weeks because we took a break and we, we talked about some Christmas stuff. We went through the Advent season. So um, we have to think about what happened right before this in this text. And if you think about it and you rewind just a few verses, what we find is this uh, amazing declaration from Peter that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And he boldly proclaims this. And it says from then on, from that time, after Peter makes this declaration and the disciples all seemingly agree with him, um, we find from then on, Jesus begins to uh, teach them about things that he's alluded to earlier, but now he's going to start being more and more explicit about. Um, as a matter of fact, here, he just flat out tells him, he says, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. It's not going to be pretty. I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again on the third day. So he begins to tell them with increasing clarity. And I think before this point, what we see is things were somewhat veiled. Jesus was a little more vague about what was going to happen. But now he's just explicitly telling them, here's what's going to happen. So from then on, he starts changing the way he talks to them. And it goes on, he says, from then on, Jesus began to point out to the disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Now, I found it interesting that Jesus saw this as something that was necessary, like that he must go and die. Um, Jesus knew exactly what he had to do. Um, I just think about that for a minute. If you knew that the horrors of Calvary were coming to you, uh, how, would you how would you live? It would probably be different. Um, Jesus knew exactly what was coming. He knew what he had to do, so much so that he saw it as necessary. And that he, sh- he sees this as something that's necessary it actually goes back to something we talked about on Christmas last week. Um, we talked last week about how Jesus perfectly submitted himself to the Father's will. See, if you and I knew that if we were going to a particular city, we're just going to use St. Joe's as an example because it's close. So if we knew we were going to go to St. Joe, and whenever we get there, we're going to suffer and die. You're probably not going to St. Joe, are you? Like, let's just be honest. If you knew that was going to happen, you're probably going to go somewhere else. Jesus knows what happens whenever he goes to Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. It's not a secret to him. But he says that it's necessary for him to go. He sees it as a requirement. And why was it necessary? Couldn't he have just gone somewhere else? Well, probably, maybe could have. I mean, in his flesh, he probably wanted to even. But what we know is that he saw the Father's will as the most important thing. Above everything else, even above his own life, being obedient to the Father's will was necessary to him. So he said he had to go up, that it was necessary for him to go up and to die. Because he knew that that was the best way to glorify his Father by submitting to his will. So he specifically said that it was necessary for him to go. And then he says he has to suffer under these three groups, right? He he says that he has to suffer under the elders, chief priests, and scribes. And if we start thinking about who these elders, chief priests, and scribes are, this was the Sanhedrin. He says, I'm going to suffer under the ruling Jewish council. So these top-tier Jewish people, I'm going to suffer under their leadership. In other words, God's people, God's covenant people from the Old Testament, they're going to be the ones that oversaw Jesus' execution. And he he knows it. And he knows it. Jesus knew the horrors that were coming to him. But he does give some comfort, right? He says, I'm going to go and suffer and die, but going to be raised again on the third day. So... Here, verse 21, he flat out tells his disciples that this is what's coming. This is what's coming. But Peter, ah, Peter, I told you I love Peter. Peter's one of my favorite people in the New Testament because I I can relate to Peter. Um, Peter seems to be a pretty smart guy um, until he starts talking to Jesus. Then he puts his foot in his mouth again and again and again. Um, And that's me, y'all. So, verse 22, Peter, um, Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside. 
and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Now, keep in mind that this is the same Peter that just a few verses ago was boldly declaring that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. (laughs) And now he says, nah, you're wrong, Jesus. Uh Uh-uh, that's not going to happen to you. Just think about the irony of that. Um, Did Peter have it all figured out? Of course not. Of course he didn't. Uh, as a matter of fact, he looks like a fool here. But, but he says, it says that he took him aside. Now, let's give Peter a little bit of credit. He was at least showing Jesus enough respect that he wasn't going to rebuke him in front of everybody else. He at least showed him enough respect there. So he says he takes him aside and he says, no, this is never going to happen to you. And by saying this is never going to happen to you, it's kind of like you or I saying, God forbid that that would ever happen. God forbid it. Hmm. Problem is, this is the son of God he's talking to. And he knows it. But again, Peter had good intentions, didn't he? Like, I think Peter had good intentions. Uh, the problem wasn't that he wanted to do harm or that he thought that God didn't know what he was doing. That's not the problem he had at all. The problem was Peter's ignorance. See, Peter loved Jesus. He loved him enough that he wanted to protect him. He says, no, they're not going to take you. It's kind of like he says, no, over my dead body will they take you. It's not going to happen. We'll protect you. You've got guys that are willing to fight for you. You don't need to go and die. We have your back. Peter is with him. And Peter has really good intentions. But again, the problem is his ignorance. See, sometimes I think we do this. We have really good intentions. And maybe we're even passionate about what we're doing. Oh yeah, even passionate about what we're doing. Peter was certainly passionate about this. The problem is that Peter didn't fully understand what he was doing or what he was saying. And I think we often have the same problem. We have good intentions And we're doing something that seems like maybe this is the right way to go. But we haven't really thought these things through or gone to God to see what his word says about it. And because of this, Peter went so far as to rebuke Jesus. (laughs) Of course, we have have the benefit of hindsight, but just think about rebuking Jesus. Like, come on, Peter. Um, But why did he rebuke him? Why did he rebuke him? I think it's because Jesus was saying something that didn't fit Peter's expectation. He had something in mind that he thought should happen. And whenever the Son of God, whenever Jesus disagreed with that, Peter had a problem with it. So he said, no, no, we're going to change this. Now, what we know, what should change? Should Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God change, or should Peter's expectation change? Obviously, we know the answer to that. We're looking back and we have hindsight. But how often do we do this ourselves? I'll tell you you this. I do it all the time. I have certain expectations about what I think God ought to do. (laughs) And he doesn't. I'm like, well, God, why not? Why didn't you do what I thought you should do? (laughs) Now, I hope you hear this. Isn't that like the height of arrogance? What Peter's displaying here is arrogance. Now, again, it flows from his ignorance. It flows from his ignorance, but it comes out as arrogance. Um, And that's basically what happens. He thought he knew better than God did. And that was Peter's mistake. Um, I read this thing, and some of you, John Calvin has certain, certain connotations, but you know what? I don't really care. He said this thing, and I love what he said. He said, so deeply is pride rooted in the heart of men that they think wrong is done to them and complain if God does not comply with everything that they consider to be right. Really, this is us. Pride is so deeply rooted in our hearts that we feel offended whenever God doesn't comply to our expectations. Am I alone? I don't think I am. And at this point, Peter isn't placing his wisdom under Jesus' wisdom. He's not submitting to the wisdom of God. Instead, he's submitting to his own wisdom. He's not putting it in the proper rank. We have to do different. Verse 23, 
It says that Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Now, this is Peter, the, the one on whom the, the church was going to be built. The rock that would be, that would be like at the bedrock of the church. This Peter, same guy. And now he says he's a, he's a hindrance. This could be translated as stumbling block. Like the same stone that the church was going to be built on is now a stumbling block for many. Why? Because he was wrong. Um, the word hindrance or stumbling block is from the Greek word scandalon. It's where we get our word scandal. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, you're a scandal to me. You're trying to cause me to stumble. You're trying to tempt me away from the right thing. And what I found interesting is this response that Jesus gives to Peter is actually it's similar to what he says to Satan whenever Satan comes and tempts him. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, he says something very similar to Peter. And he even calls him Satan. It just goes to show that even those who do understand who Jesus is, at least to some degree, still have deeply rooted flaws. Deeply rooted flaws. Um, Peter's still being perfected. Does that excuse his misunderstanding? No, it does not. But what we have to understand is people will have different degrees of knowledge about who Jesus is. Um, And we should increasingly, increasingly submit to his wisdom. Um, And what Jesus is doing here... As he's talking with Peter, as he's having this back and forth, what he's doing here is he's showing that there is a wisdom that is different from that of the world. Because Peter looked at what Jesus said and saw it as foolishness, didn't he? Um, He says, you're going to go and die? No, sir. Uh Uh-uh. That's not what's going to happen. And it actually reminded me of something I I read just the other day in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where where Paul, he writes, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. See, Peter was looking at this with a wisdom from the world, not with the wisdom of God. What we need to do is we need to look for wisdom from God, not from the world around us. Where does wisdom come from? It comes from Jesus. Um, the funny thing is, whenever Jesus, whenever Jesus became a fool to this world, he really did the wisest thing possible. Uh, the death on a cross looked like foolishness. It looked like he had lost like he had, he had gone the wrong way, he had made a mistake, but really the cross wound up bringing the greatest glory to God, which was Jesus' highest aim. So really it was wise. Um, our task is disciples of Jesus. If we're saying we're going to learn from him, follow after him, our goal is to learn from him by submitting to his wisdom. And at times that will look like foolishness to the world. So to be Jesus' disciples, you must submit to his wisdom. Second, to be Jesus' disciples, you must submit to his ways. Now, this goes with his wisdom, but stay with me here because I think it's got a little bit of a difference. Uh, Verse 24, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, first of all, he's talking to his disciples primarily, but what we have to understand is his disciples were not just the twelve. There was a broader group that Jesus referred to as his disciples. So he says, he turns and he says to his disciples, If anyone, any person who wants to come after Jesus, Here's what it's going to cost them. Here's what it requires. This is not just a call that Jesus gives to an elite few, like an elite few Christians. He gives this to anyone. It's for anyone who wants to come after Christ. And here's what he says is going to demand of them. And he really gives this in three parts. He says, first, let them deny themselves. If you want to come after Jesus, you have to deny yourself. Um, this is just my opinion. Um, but I believe one of the biggest issues that we have in the church 
is that we look just like the world because we are all about ourselves. Um, and just so you know, I'm not just talking about you all, I'm talking about me too. Um, like, we are all, still all about ourselves. We pursue those things that will bring us the greatest comforts, or we strive for things that are going to bring us the greatest temporary happiness. And those tend to be our, our highest aim. That's what we pursue. Is it wrong to be comfortable? Is it necessarily wrong to have good things? Is it wrong to provide for your family? No, of course not. Of course not. I would encourage you to do those things, actually. Um, the problem is, the problem is, Jesus says, he, he doesn't just say, he demands that we deny ourselves, our desires, our wants, even our very lives. We are to deny ourselves. Um, and that actually leads to the next part of this demand. He says, let him deny himself, take up his cross. Jesus is saying that following him is going to require your life. It is going to require your life. Um, Warren Wearsby, he said it this way. He said, today the cross is an accepted symbol of love and sacrifice. Right? You all see a cross. You don't, you don't think of a torture device. You think of love and sacrifice. And that's typically what we think of. But he says, but in that day the cross was a horrible means of capital punishment. The Romans would not mention the cross in polite society. In fact, no Roman citizen could be crucified. This terrible death was reserved for their enemies. Jesus had not yet specifically stated that he would be crucified, but his words that follow emphasize the cross. Like, we think about the cross, carrying your cross, and we think about this picture of love and sacrifice, which it is. We don't think about this horrible means of capital punishment. And that's what the first century hearers of this word would have heard. Like, this brutal way to die. Jesus is saying that if you want to truly be called a Christian, you have to die to yourself. Yeah, deny yourself, die to yourself. And really, isn't that what we celebrated? That sounds weird, celebrate dying to yourself. Isn't that what we celebrated just a little bit ago in this tub? Like, isn't that what we did? Um, That's the picture, death to self, dying, being put in the grave, and being raised to new life in Christ. Um, So that's what Levi declared just a little bit ago. And what we declare whenever we come to Jesus and we follow him in baptism is that we are no longer the center of our world. The world is not about me anymore. What we are declaring in baptism is that we are dead to our own wants, our desires, our goals, our aims, and instead our number one, the only aim that we have is to glorify our God and to know him. That's what we want. We want to know and glorify our God. And we are learning to make the Father the center of everything, and really that's what Jesus did. So we must deny ourselves, um, die to self, and then he says, and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, And follow me. If the first two parts, the self-denial and the death, if they're the negative, here's the positive. Here's what we do. We surrender our very lives for the sake of pursuing Jesus. Of pursuing him. Coming after him. So we surrender our lives for the sake of coming after him. For the sake of looking like him. But why? Why do we do all that? Well, verse 25. Jesus says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Okay. The point is this. You pursue your life now, you're going to lose it in the end. You cannot hold on to your life. Um, I hope you all know that. Like, this is not really, it's not fun to talk about, but this is, this is not a big secret. You all know that assuming Jesus doesn't come back between now and the time you die, you will eventually die, right? You, you know that you will face death. Um, now, teenage guys, that includes you. Um, I remember being a teenager. I thought I was immortal. Um, nothing was going to hurt me. 
it turns out I was wrong. Um, anyway, I'm regretting some choices I made whenever I was 16, 17. But anyway, you get, surely not you guys, though. Um, but that's just the truth. We know that death, it, it, it waits for all of us. So if, if we just pursue this life, eventually we're going to lose it. You're going to lose all of it. You might be able to hold on to it for a time, but eventually you will lose it. So clinging to this life in the end, it's only going to lead you to destruction because you can't keep it. But he says, those who give up their lives for the sake of Christ and following after him, that they will gain life. And this is the good news. This is the good news. This, is, this shows us that there's hope, that we can have life through a connection to Jesus. But we have to understand that we cannot, we cannot be Jesus' disciples and still pursue our wants, our desires, our lives, our ways as our highest goals. It doesn't mesh. If we are going to be disciples of Jesus, if we're going to say we belong to him, we have to submit to his wisdom and to his ways. And then third, to be his disciple, you must submit to his values. To his values. Verse 26, he says, For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world, yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? (laughs) All right, I'm going to give you a crazy hypothetical here. Let's just say for a moment, I had the ability to make you filthy rich. And everybody's going to be happy about that, right? Like, let's just be honest. Y'all want money. Okay, that's fine. Um, So I have the ability to make you filthy rich. I have the ability to give you any power that you want. Like, you can do anything you want. If, If some of you, you're like, I just want to be left alone. Okay, I can give you perfect privacy. Perfect privacy. Okay, like if I have the ability to do that and I could do that in this life, you can have you can have the power, you can have the wealth, you can have privacy for some. You can have anything, anything you want, anything that you could think of that's like, okay, this this would really make my life a whole lot easier. And I could give you the comfort and all of that. And you know what? I'm even going to I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to tell you that you can have a healthy family. You can have the healthy family that you want, and everything's going to be good. Your relationship with your, with your family is going to be great. Everything's going to be perfect there. And I can even go so far as to tell you, you're going to live a long life. A long life. You know what? Let's just say you're going to live to be 120 years old. All right? I can guarantee you all those things. Here's the problem. At the end of that, you forfeit everything. All right. You see where I'm going with this, right? I can give you all that, but eventually, you, you, at the end of it, you're going to lose it all. Now... That's one option. But Jesus says there's another option. There's another option. Give up your life now and get life for eternity. Like, surrender your life to him. Die to yourself and you live with him for eternity. Those are the options on the table. Live for yourself now or live for God forever. There isn't a third option. That's what he lays out here. Now, whenever we put it like that, I hope you see that the answer is obvious. And really it is. The problem is we are so clouded by our immediate perceived needs that we think, I have to cling to this now. I have to cling to this now. See, Jesus gave up his life so that he might gain life. Um, The question then is, will we be so bold as to do the same? Because there is some level of trust that that is true. You have to believe that that's true. I'm just saying it's one thing, but believing it's another. So much so that you're willing to sell out your whole life in pursuit of it. Um, verse 27, he goes on, he says, For the Son of Man is, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And I believe Jesus here is pointing to the future whenever he comes again a second time. So he says, uh, he says I'm coming again, and then, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Now, 
Uh, this reward according to works, does that mean that you can work your way into God's good graces? I hope you know the answer to that is no. If you've been here any amount of time, you should know that the answer to that is no. You cannot work your way into God's good graces. Instead, what I think is happening here is the same truth that you find as you read through the book of James. You go read the book of James, what happens whenever there's faith? There's works. And I believe that we will be rewarded for faith and our good works in Jesus. So by saying you're rewarded for works or you're rewarded for faith, I believe it's the same thing. Because if you have a faith that doesn't work, you don't have faith. There you go. I think it's pretty simple. So, where there is faith, there will necessarily be good works. One does not exist without the other. And he goes on, verse 28, he says, For truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this is this verse right here, this is fascinating. I read a book years ago. Um, I had never heard of this idea before. Some actually thought that this meant that some of the disciples were going to live until the second coming. Um, these are men in the first century. And there are people who have speculated about that. I'm like, nah, dude, I don't think there's a 2,000-year-old John walking around. Um, and the author of the book wasn't really a proponent of that either. But um, I did think that was interesting, at least. Um, just so you know, I don't believe that's true at all, and I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Um, so whenever we read this, I think we have to actually ask ourselves what the meaning of this is. And there are various opinions, but what I think best fits the context and the teaching of the rest of Matthew and really the rest of Scripture is this. Um, I believe that whenever he says there are some standing here who will not taste death until, until they see, see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I think what he's talking about is um, the coming of the kingdom whenever we see the church rapidly expand. Uh, rapidly expand. I believe that's what he's referring to here. Now, this could include Pentecost, although I don't think it specifically means Pentecost. But what we see is in the lifetime of some of these disciples who Jesus would have been talking to here, we, we, church history tells us that they were alive until the kingdom expanded to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the known earth. Um, so I believe that that's what Jesus is referring to here. But what we need to see is that we have to submit to his values. And what does he start talking about here? He's talking about kingdom expansion. Now, is that what we value? Is that what we pursue? Because that's what he values. And if we're submitting to his values, then our goal will be to see the kingdom expand, the kingdom to come. Like, that's what Jesus even prayed and taught his disciples to pray, for your kingdom to come, your will to be done. Um, and that's what we should value, above our own wants, our own ways, our own wisdom. So to be Jesus' disciples, you must submit to his wisdom, his ways, and his values. So what? Um, well, we talked about New Year's resolutions this morning during Sunday school. Um, are you guys New Year's resolutions people? No, some of you are. I heard somebody say, yeah, yeah, I've set big New Year's resolutions. I'm going to get fit in 2023. Um, I am not going to get fit in 2023. I just don't see it happening. It would be great if it did, but I, don't, I know myself better than that. But I'm not trying to encourage you to set a New Year's resolution. That's not my point. What I'm saying is this. Jesus isn't telling you to set a resolution today. Instead, what he's saying is that it, following him, following him demands everyday submission to his lordship. Every day. Not just saying at the first of the year, I'm going to start doing this. No, he's saying every day we submit to his lordship, to his messiahship that was just declared by Peter a few verses ago. Like he's saying, every day we submit to his lordship. Now, here's the thing. Following Jesus for you, it, it may be easy, but I doubt it. I mean, if we're truly following Jesus, being his disciple, it's probably not going to be easy all the time. Um, and I just want to be clear about that. And I, I believe that's why Jesus actually says, 
take up your cross. Take up this picture of torture, uh, the horrors of the cross. Um, it's not going to be easy. And Jesus doesn't make it out to be. As a matter of fact, on another occasion, whenever there's people that start coming after Jesus, he turns to him. He says, look, if you really want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And all of a sudden people are like, yeah, I'm out. Nope, I'm done now. And what we need to understand is the call to follow Jesus is not always easy. In fact, it's rarely easy. And I just want to be clear about that. As we're entering into a new year, like if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm just going to be as clear as I can. Following him is not going to be a cakewalk. It's going to be difficult. And it will be costly. I will also tell you that it will be worth it. It will also be worth it. Um, There are going to be days that's incredibly strenuous. I I read this article by a guy named Ben Lacey. He's a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he's also a contributor. Some of you may have heard of the outlet Nine Marks. Um, So he's a contributor for Nine Marks, and he he wrote this article on uh, walking the aisle versus carrying your cross. And it it was talking about this idea of cheap grace, uh, this idea of cheap grace. And he said this. He said, you want to be made right with God? You want Christ's righteousness. It will cost you everything. You'll have to quit the sins you love. You may lose your job. Your family may hate you. You need to know following Jesus is always right, but rarely is it easy. If you are here today and you see that losing everything is worth gaining Christ, then this is the place for you. That's what the church is. A people who have counted the cost and are imperfectly denying themselves and carrying their cross. We would love to talk with you after the service about what it means to follow Christ and how to make your faith public and join this church. See, I don't think we need to sell, sell the Christian faith. I think we need to be clear about what the Christian faith is. Um, I'm just going to tell you, you are a sinner, and someday you will die. It's that simple. You will. The wages of sin is death. You will die someday. But the gift of God is eternal life. If we come to him in faith and repentance, we can have life. So today, I want to I urge you to do two things. Um, whether you're, you've been a Christian for decades or you say, you know what, I'm just curious about this thing. I don't really know. I'm not sure. Um, I, I want you to do two things for me. First, I want you to count the cost. Um, be cl- I just want to be clear. Following Jesus is not a hobby to, to take up on weekends. That's not what it's about. It's about selling out completely to follow him. Now, some of Jesus' disciples, some of them physically uprooted their lives and followed after him. Some of them stayed where they were and they adhered to his teachings where they were. I'm not telling you you're going to have to move to some third world country. You may, but you may not. Okay? But I want you to count the cost. Is Jesus worth everything? So that's one thing I want you to do today. I want you to count the cost. But the second thing I want to ask you to do today is to take up your cross, give up your life for the sake of knowing and following King Jesus and be his disciple. Uh, Be his disciple, because that's what we're called to, to follow him, and then to go and make disciples of all nations. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the opportunity to speak on this new year, uh, to gather at the first day of this new year that you've given us. Um, Lord, I pray that as we look to the future, which we naturally do on a day like today, um, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we consider the question, are we willing to give up everything for the sake of following you, of knowing your son? Um, so Lord, I pray that you would, you would give us sober minds, that you would give us a clarity as we ask that question, am I willing to give it all? 
Uh, But Lord, I also pray that you would convict people of sin, that they would see that there is no life for them beyond this if they don't have Jesus. Lord, so I pray that you would call many to yourself and that you would show them that we have hope, that we have life, that we have joy, that we we have everything we need if we turn to you in faith and repentance. So, Lord, I pray for those of us that have been Christians for, for years and years, Lord, I, I pray that we would have a new, a new vigor about us, that we would have a new zeal, a desire to pursue you, and that we would truly sit down and we would strive to learn from you to become more like you. Lord, and for those who maybe haven't ever said, I am going to give up everything for following Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would call them, that they would be saved, and they might enjoy eternal life. Um, Lord, but above all, I pray that you would be glorified, um, that people would look to you and just know that you are an awesome God who is worth everything. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.